This podcast contains explicit material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Joy of Text, a monthly podcast about Judaism and sexuality. Coming up on this episode, we'll discuss sexual desire. Like just to kind of start with the basics here, what is low desire and can low desire be treated? And we'll talk with our very own Dr. Batsheva Marcus about her new book called Sex Points, Reclaim Your Sex Life with a Revolutionary Point System. I feel like we have to stop thinking about our sex life as like what's not working, like the thing that isn't working. Like we're all like looking around like, oh, it must be my relationship, or it must be we just had a fight, or it must be that I'm really tired. And stop thinking about it as the thing that's off, that you're gonna find that magic piece and switch it back on. I think the model that we all need to use, and which is way more helpful, is that you need to hit a 100-point threshold in order to make your sex life work. And finally, the final word. That's all coming up after this quick word from our sponsor. At Maze Health, we know that if you're having sexual problems, it can have a significant impact on your life and on your relationship. We also know that these problems are not all in your head, and it's important for you to know that pain, low libido, erection, or orgasm problems can all be successfully resolved. Maze is the only treatment center of its kind in the area, addressing both the physical and emotional sources of sexual difficulties. If you're a man or a woman experiencing sexual problems, please don't go another day feeling like there is no solution. Visit us at www.mazehealth.com. We are so excited to be here today. And this week, we actually have a very special episode because in addition to speaking about desire, we will also be talking to Batsheva about her new book, which is called Sex Points. And it's going to be sort of exciting today because the topic for the episode is like very related to the content of your book. Right, Batsheva? Yeah, I, I am super excited about this episode because I feel like writing this book and getting this out, it's like been giving birth. <laughs> okay, we're going to hear way more about that later. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> yeah. want to say I am so psyched because it's a Batsheva is a really, really special guest. She has uh, so much expertise in this field. So uh, we feel very honored to have her on the podcast. It was hard catching me. You know, it was really hard getting me on here. Absolutely. It was a big ask, to say the least. Anyway, so before we get to the interview about the book, let's dive into today's topic, which is sexual desire. So first of all, like just to kind of start with the basics here, what is low desire and can low desire be treated? So that is an amazing question because it's a question everybody in the field argues about all the time and nobody really totally understands. Um, and I think the more you parse it out, the better and more effective we can be at treating it. Low desire in its most simple form is I don't really want to have sex. That's low desire. The medical community, as it's sort of entered into this, has started reframing that as I don't want to have sex and it bothers me. Because, right, you know, it, you could not want to have sex and it's fine, right? So we can spend more time talking about that as well. And when you say like it's fine versus it bothers me, you mean like if I end up having a sexual encounter, it is fine and I'm fine with that versus if I end up having a sexual encounter, that's like not okay with me? Like, is that kind of the difference there? So that's another distinction, right? So some of the distinctions have to do with um, how how little is my desire? And we can talk about that. That could be, and I will break down for you exactly how I parse desire when I'm doing an intake with a woman. So maybe that's kind of a good place to start. When a woman comes in and says, I have no desire, she comes in, she plunks herself down. She's like, I have no desire, Bacheva. My desire is gone. The first divide, whether it's really desire we're talking about or arousal we're talking about. And those are two very different things that our society does not make a distinction about, right? Desire is, I don't want to have sex. I don't feel like I want to have sex. I couldn't care less if I have sex. And arousal is, I don't get turned on. Nothing happens for me when I have sex or that laundry list is running through my head. Now, obviously those two things are intertwined, right? Because if you don't get turned on, you may not want to have desire. But the thing that's fascinating, which people do not understand, is that they do stand independently. So I can have a woman who gets turned on, her body responds really well, she has an orgasm, she has great sex, and then she just doesn't want to do it again. She's so not interested. And her partner is like, what the hell? Like, why do you not want to have sex? Like, 
it's so great when we have it. And she's like, yeah, I know. And I just don't want to do it. And so we are starting to kind of understand that those may be different neurological pathways and they need to be addressed as separate entities, although they are obviously attached to each other. But let's just talk about desire for the moment. And let's put arousal on the bench. We could do arousal another time. And that's why this book is 350 pages, by the way. <laughs> so, Because it talks about pain and arousal and orgasm and desire. So all of those things and how they're interrelated. Um, when I meet with a woman, I, and I assess desire, I rank it into four. I have four levels. So level one is she spontaneously wants to have sex. She just sometimes wants to have sex or she regularly wants to have sex. And that I usually see with my 20 year old patients or my patients who are brand new relationships, right? I, um, I don't usually see that in the long-term relationships and the older women. What I more often see there is what I call a level two, which is perfectly fine desire as well, which is that you don't necessarily have spontaneous desire. And this touches a little bit on what you were talking about, Sarah, but you can get yourself there quite easily, right? Usually it comes because you realize you don't need to have spontaneous desire to have sex. You've decided you want to have sex. And so you start you know, introducing all the stimuluses that get you turned on, like kissing, fantasizing, whatever, and then you get turned on and now your desire kicks in and you want to have sex. And so that's a perfectly good place to be. If you're somebody who can access your desire when you want it to, even though it's not spontaneous, that's great. Now let's talk about level three, which is where a lot, a lot of women find themselves. And men too, I think, but more women. And we can talk about that. I don't really want to have sex. And I'm going to a little bit kind of, kind of avoid it. So if my husband is waiting for me, he goes upstairs and says, I'll see you later, honey. I may hang out in the shower for an extra half hour, work on my emails for an extra half hour, and just sort of hope that he'll be asleep by the time I get upstairs. So that's a level three. And that could be problematic. And that's something that needs to be, you know, dealt with. Level one is I have spontaneous desire and I want to have sex. No question. Level two is I don't, you know, particularly have spontaneous desire, but I can access it and get it going when I want to. That's level two. Level three is I'm kind of a little bit avoidant. And level four is what I'm calling aversive. And that's the women who talk about, I really don't want to have sex. I really and truly do not want to have sex. It's almost like I'm being dragged to have sex. And honestly, back to the point about separating from arousal, it's really sort of confusing to people when, when that lives alongside the sex is good, I have good orgasms, everything's working well, and I still don't really, I really, really do not want to have sex. That's an interesting question. And that's, you know, fascinating. So those are the four levels of desire. And that, I think, responds a little bit to what you were asking, I think. Yeah, absolutely. When I say it doesn't bother me, it's like any of those levels. Like if you say... I never have sex and I couldn't care less. I'm not in a relationship or my partner never wants sex either and they're being honest. Let's let's assume that everybody's being honest. Then that's fine. That's not a problem. I don't walk around thinking everybody has to be having sex. But for most, most people and certainly most women, I think most men also, when you don't have that sense of desire at all, you can't access it, you lose a piece of yourself. And that is what is so incredibly, I think, powerful. So... Um, so that's kind of an initial primer on desire, desire versus arousal, for example. And then what you do about it is kind of an interesting question. And I, I want to say something about women in monogamy, which I think Dove might have something to say about, but it looks like Dove wants to say something now. So Yeah, no, I do have one or two quick questions. One is you said you mentioned men. The, the general, I don't know if I'd say myth or perception is that men have a lot more spontaneous desire, a lot more general interest in sex. So, you know, one question is whether there's truth to that, that, you know, if you were to rate men on the one to four, would men generally score, you know, closer to the one and twos than to the threes and fours? So I think that the answer to that is yes. And I think the answer to that is also very based on in their testosterone levels. And I also think that one of the things that we have really ignored is how critically important testosterone is to women, estrogen and testosterone. And I talk about that a lot in the book as well. And the example I give, which people always laugh about, is if you're waiting in a movie theater line and you see two 17-year-olds who cannot keep their hands off each other, your first thought is not, oh my God, they must have had this really deep, meaningful conversation, right? <laughs> and your second thought is not, he must have just bought her beautiful flowers, right? That is not what goes through your head. And you think to yourself, their hormones are raging. And yet somehow when we talk about adults in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s, 
somehow that gets lost in the shuffle. Every time there's any kind of problem, like desire, rather we assume it has to do with the relationship. That is such a great point. That's so interesting. And it kind of brings me to the next question I was going to ask. Sorry if I cut you off. When we think about low desire, is this is this like a always a chemical hormonal type of thing. Like I've heard a lot of people talking about how like birth control can impact desire and all, you know, giving birth and all kinds of hormonal changes can impact this. But is it, is it primarily a hormonal thing or is it more of a psychological thing? Okay. I love you so much, Sarah, for asking that question. And I feel like the fact that you did that without reading the book is like, the reason I call the book sex points is because I say we have to stop thinking about our sex life as the, looking for the primary problem, like a light switch, what's broken or off and turn it back on. That you need to look at your sex life like an amalgam of points. You need a hundred points to make your threshold. If you have a hundred point threshold, you are good to go. And those points can come from things and be taken away from things, right? So some of it is going to come from your relationship. And we're always jump, you know, jumping on that as your first you know, the first line of thought, which really bothers me because I feel like it gets people into a lot of trouble. Some of it is going to come from your hormone levels. And those hormones are constantly being affected by lack of sleep, which raises your cortisol level, which shuts down your testosterone levels, age, which is shutting down your estrogen and your testosterone levels, birth control pills. Those things are constantly being shit changing. I mean, I don't know how many of you saw that amazing article five years ago. I'm sure I made reference to it. Men who stay home with their children, their testosterone levels drops. Mm. Wow. That's so interesting. We don't acknowledge how much our behavior affects our physiology and how much our physiology affects our behavior, right? To my mind, that was a show-stopping study. Like, that was it. You could put a period at the end of that study just to make the point. I think that hormones have a huge impact. And if you'll see in the book, I actually give it like 80 points. Like, I feel like if your hormones... Now, most people aren't missing all their 80 points, but they're missing some of their 80 points, right? And so the question is, how do you get those back? And those may be... You may have to get those points from your body, from your fantasy life, from your relationship with your partner, from hormones, from getting on, changing the hormones you're on, right? The idea is that I think hormones have a huge impact and trying to blame, jumping immediately to say it's the relationship is always a problem. Just quickly jumping back to the issue of it's okay, you know, I'm okay with it, that there's sometimes I'm okay with it, but what is that doing to my marriage? You know, so I want to just clarify that I'm okay. There's one thing about me personally. There's another thing about, you know, whether my husband is okay with it. So you have just hit, I'm telling you, I feel like I could have fed you these things because I, these are so, I feel so passionately. So it, there's a whole group of, in the therapy community that says that we have like, we're trying to push women to want to have sex more because, you know, it's, it's like created by the media, which really, really pisses me off. And that, only if the woman herself per se is unhappy should we be addressing these things. And I'm with you, Dove. I feel like people make choices. Like my relationship is very important to my life. It's really important. I love my husband. I want him to be happy. I feel like our family is important. In the Orthodox Jewish community, long-term monogamous relationships are a high, high value and happy long-term monogamous relationships should be a high value. And so I feel like if you say, look, I don't have desire because desire is tricky, right? If you don't desire desire, then wanting to want is always a tricky kind of thing. But if you say my low desire is not working in the context of my life, in my mind, that is a perfectly legitimate, legitimate reason for a woman to seek help. And it's an amazing reason for a woman to seek help. So I also get that sometimes difficult because um, if you don't want, it's hard to even remember, especially if you're somebody who never wanted sex. It's really hard to access that. But if you're somebody who used to desire and kind of feels the difference in yourself, you can feel like a loss and it can feel like something you can gain back. But one of the things that struck me sort of from the Orthodox Jewish podcast piece about this is the question of monogamy on women. Because I feel like there's a significant piece of information for listeners to know. We love to believe. We love, love to believe that women have an easier time with monogamy than men. And the data actually does not support that. Just so you know, the data does not support that. It seems that women actually have a harder time with monogamy than men. And honestly, when I talk to women about low desire, if they're being honest, and it's often very hard for them to be honest, their low desire is kind of low desire for their partner, not for people in general, if they allow themselves to think beyond their partner, which a lot of women don't, right? So... What I think has happened culturally is that culturally we believe so strongly 
oh, men have a hard time with monogamy. And so they're always talking about how they wish they could have sex with other people. And that's sort of perfectly acceptable as long as they don't do it. And then they'll have sex with their partner. And with women, they're low desire. They don't like to think that they're interested possibly in other people. And so they just shut down the desire entirely. They just say, like, I just don't have desire. And, and we as a society love the idea. I think we love the idea that women are, you know, the hearth and home safeguards that could never possibly be interested in the firemen down the block. And I use firemen because for some reason, women are constantly fantasizing about firemen. <laughs> anyway, I'd love you to talk about this for a minute, though, because I feel like what's so ironic is all those thousands of generations where, you know, polygamy was okay. Men could have multiple wives, but wives didn't have multiple husbands. And yeah. Well, that had something to do also with children and, you know, and there was a lot of, I don't know, I imagine there was when there was a lot of death of children, you know, you wanted to uh, have more wives, but. Oh, that's interesting. I'm sorry. I did not realize. Sarah, did you realize that? No, I don't know if that's true. I'm just speculating. I always thought like why halachically men are allowed to have multiple wives and women are not, that it was like so that you could know who the father of the child was. Like if a woman had like multiple husbands, then she would give birth and you'd have no idea about the like lineage of the child. Right. And also in postmenopausal women were all dead. And also in halacha, which might be reflecting larger society, there was a sense of women as possessions of the husband. So you can have multiple possessions, you know, anyway, but yeah, I guess my question is that, you know, we have, we hear all this evolutionary biology thing about men's desire to spread their seed and, you know, and how that's about, you know, men's need to be less monogamous. So you're telling me that that's all bunk. So I can't tell you it's all bunk. I really don't. And I, there's not a lot of there's just data starting to come out now because people started actually thinking, oh, maybe monogamy actually is harder on the women. Like nobody even looked at it. And honestly, Dan Bergner's book, What Do Women Want, talks a lot more about that than my book does. I sort of start with that as a something for us to think about. But I will tell you that for many of the women I talk to, um, their desire, you know, if I allow them to sort of explore it and really not feel guilty about it, they will start talking about the fact that it's their desire for their husband that's really the problem more than their desire in general. So one one or two other questions about that. Number one is, so what's the whole pornography industry about, which is all male directed? And the other question is that, is there a difference between desire and acting on it? Like, does the what does the data show in terms of adultery? Great question. Let's start with the pornography. So you have that a bit wrong. The pornography industry, when we think about it as visual pornography, is highly dominated by men. The written pornography... Okay, the story pornography is so far, so far surpassed with the women, just so you know, like, so it it almost escalates the, the, the visual pornography. And the amount of time spent per unit is way higher as well. So yeah, if we expand our definition of pornography and take it out of a male dominant view of pornography, it's not 100% true that it's, you know, there's a site called Literatica, which is, has erotic stories, which is just ginormous. Um, there's so many of these sites. And there's more and more also audio sites that are being put together for women, which I feel like, like Dipsy, which is fantasies. Um, women seem to respond auditorily, even just listening to sex sounds and certainly to stories, but storylines in particular that make a woman, a talk about a woman feeling so overpoweringly desired right? Like that is, that is the, you know, um, for men, it's their, you know, admiration for their endowment. And for women, it's the being so desirable. And if you had to break it down, so does that answer that question? Yes. And there was a second question. Oh, who acts on it more? I think it's still men, but it's not huge. It's not a huge disparity. We we had an episode on affairs, I think, and the number was quite different than one one would have expected. So interesting. I think so we're just I- starting to crack this issue of women's low desire. I feel like it's such an unfair because I feel like, on a, as a certain level, you know, in our society, we're like, oh, women have low desire. That's just the way it is, and you know, live with it. And most women, when they have low desire don't want to think about it. I mean, that was part of the reason I wrote the book, right? They, they don't want to think about it because they have no idea what's causing it. They, they, they're not really confident there's anything they can do to make it better. And it's so painful to think about it. They feel like, well, maybe it's just the way it is and I'll just shut up and ignore it. And that, honestly, if I have to say one thing for you, it's the worst thing to do. Just don't ignore it because it just gets worse. Absolutely. And I, I guess that's sort of the direction that I wanted to turn us towards next, which is like, okay, so 
you're saying that there's a big issue here that a lot of women struggle with, with, you know, the sort of social constraints of monogamy. So like, what are we supposed to do about this? I want to say one more thing before we move into that, because that'll be our next thing is for men, I want to say who also struggle with low desire, I will say there are dramatic, dramatic changes that happen if you add hormones. If you give a guy testosterone, that's almost like a light switch. I, I will say like that is almost like a light switch for guys who are having lesser erections, hard time ejaculating, but for sure low desire. It is almost like a light switch. So with men, what you need to really separate, like the same way I talked about arousal and desire separating for women and orgasm being a separate thing. For men, you can break things down to desire to have sex, ability to get aroused, get an erection, keep that erection, and ability to ejaculate. Those are three different pieces, again, all connected, but all may be treated slightly differently. Testosterone can help all three of those, depending on what is going on. Viagra will not help desire. It will help your ability to hold an erection, keep an erection, and sometimes ejaculate, depending on where that problem is coming from. It may help your desire in a secondary way, the same way that if you can get a woman to have an orgasm, she'll like might want to be more interested, right? If if every time you try to have sex, your erection is kind of like hard to have and weak, um, you may start feeling like avoiding sex. So that is like a secondary issue. Okay, now let's go on to Sarah's question, which is. How do you fix it? Yes. Well, I, like also, I feel like the answers you were just giving are kind of under this umbrella of like, how do you fix this, right? Like what are different treatment options? How do we think about this issue and how to resolve it? Right. So oh, look, there's so much in this book. I obviously can't do it in the five or 10 minutes we've got here to do it. But I will say to you one thing, which I want to be a, a message, which is that if you're seeing a therapist for your couple's counseling issues because you think your sex life is terrible and you therefore go to a sex, you go to a couple's counselor and the couple's counselor says something to you like, oh, let's fix the relationship. And if the relationship is all good, then the sex will follow. Run for the hills. <laughs> run as fast as you can. Take your checkbook and put it away and run for the hills. Okay. There's no data to suggest that you fix your sex life by fixing your relationship. Now, I want to be fair here. If there's problems in the relationship that are affecting your sex life, then you need to deal with the relationship, right? If you're furious at your partner all the time, if you hate them, if you find them gross, if you know those kinds of things, then yes, you really do need to deal with a couples therapist. But assuming you're in a relationship where, you know, no relationship is perfect, except mine. No, no relationship is perfect (laughs) at all. No relationship is perfect. It all has its like cracks and its arguments stuff. But theoretically, a sex life should be able to sustain that. And fixing the communication is not necessarily going to fix the sex life. As a matter of fact, one of the things that horrifies me a little bit is that I feel like we have started to privilege in our society talking communication over touching so significantly, which is also an interesting thing to talk about in the context of halacha, right? Like this idea that, you know, if you feel very close, intimately connected in talking, you will be able to have that close connection physiologically, physically as well. Whereas sometimes it works the other way around. You know, sometimes when people put their sex life back on track and they're feeling really close and they're having good sex, it makes them feel closer and their whole relationship shifts because of that. And again, I see Dove's face, which you cannot because you are not here in the room. So Dove, what's your problem? I just was curious about your point about halacha. Where do you see that halacha sort of puts the relationship as the cause of the sex and not the reverse? No, that I think it privileges. Well, I feel like... Okay, maybe this isn't halacha. Maybe, you know, when people talk about halacha and they say, oh, it's so great that you have these two weeks where you can connect in a me- much more meaningful way than just the sex, right? Or, or, do you know what I mean? Or, or the fact that you can't touch each other before you're married, right? We assume that just because you have a good communication verbally, the sex will follow. Like, those are seem to be the... Don't you think? Um, yeah, I wasn't thinking, you know, I was thinking pure halacha. That's sort of like the sort of the, the, the culture that has built itself around the halacha. Because I would think about the mitzvah of Ona, which is a mitzvah to have regular sex, which basically says, what well, you know, you might not be super in the mood for it, but keep the sex going. That's interesting. Okay, no, you're right. Ona would be an exception to that. So maybe I'm being unfair, but I it, it feels to me like somehow, certainly our community. Yeah, those like are all the messages, right. Right, it's almost like a, like a sociology issue more than it is a strict halachic issue. 
Right. And you don't feel like the sociology comes from halacha. This idea that like the holy part of the relationship is the moot talking, communicating. That's the real part. And the sex is something you kind of just do because it's your like base animal instinct and you have to like condone it. I don't no, know. I think that emerges from different camps around sex and from a possible apologetics to help people deal with Nida. You know, again, I don't know how much that is anchored in the original Gemara sources. But getting back to the other question of how do you fix this? Um, there's a lot of components to it. And again, I can't do it in five minutes, but I would say Part of it is having sort of a grown-up attitude about sex, realizing that desire for sex does not land on you like fairy dust, and that you do not need spontaneous desire in order to have good sex. So those are two, I think, things we've been told and we've sort of have been inculcated in us from movies and from Disney. I don't, I don't know where else to say, you know? <laughs> and it's so interesting because a few podcasts ago, I was talking about this and Dove said to me, oh my God, like I said, you know, you do it because you think it's a good thing to do and it makes you feel good. And Dove said, oh my God, it sounds almost like you're talking about exercise. And I totally backed off. I, I was like, well, because I was afraid if I used the exercise analogy, it would be so horrifying to people. But after that episode, I had done so much thinking about this. And I think exercise moving in your life is a perfect analogy. Like you know that moving feels really good. You know that your body feels terrible if you do not move in your life, right? But if you decide to start moving and you find ways that make you feel happy and good as you move, it doesn't mean that any given day you're going to sit there and say, oh, I really want to get up and go for a walk, right? You may say, I really kind of want to sit here and watch television. But you know, if you get up and you go for that walk, you're going to feel so good and you're going to feel so good about your body and you're going to feel so good that you did it. And the more you do it, the easier it gets to do. And the more, so so I think exercising is actually a fabulous analogy if we can get past some of our romantic notions. So that's number one. Number two, I think I'm, and I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but I do think the medical, the birth control pills, the hormones, all of those pieces are something women have to really, and men need to really understand has a huge impact on their desire and that they can be fixing the relationship pieces, but until they get that stuff lined up, it's going to be very, very hard to treat it. So that's two. Three is something I talk about a lot here, which is exercising that part of your brain, that erotic part of your brain, and learning how to turn on your fantasy life, your ability to think about things that are sexy, your ability to get that to translate to your body, right? Learning that that part, and I have a whole chapter called neuroplasticity about how the more you use those erotic parts of the brain, the more you are likely to be able to access them when you need them. And then I do think there's an, a whole other piece about um, our complicated emotions, especially for these women with this monogamy thing. Because, you know, I talk to women, and this is a hard, this is a much harder thing to prescribe, but I talk to women who are like, I'm just not that interested in my husband but I do fantasize about Bob, the bicycle guy who's, who landed up in jail in high school, right? Like Bob, the, mo the motorcycle dude with the tattoos, he's the one I'm fantasizing about, right? Like him I'd have sex with, right? So I'm obviously overstating this, but I feel like for a lot of women, the things that turn them on are the things they Dafka pick men that don't match up with because they want good partners who are going to be able to be life partners with them. But that some of those complicated emotions like aggression or anger or those kinds of things, which obviously are complicated and need to be handled carefully, letting their partners or husbands access some of those as opposed to whitewashing those out of their partner or whitewashing that out of their idea of their partner may ultimately be very helpful. So that's a really complicated idea. It was the hardest chapter in the book to write. I'm dying to hear what Sarah thinks about that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really interesting idea. What about you, Dove? Well, first, I, you know, I think that that gets back to discussions we've had about fantasy. Um, so it's not just about the husband sort of playing more of that role, you know, but sometimes it's about the woman using fantasy as a way of accessing that. And the other th thought I had was about the question of role play. You know, um, I'm curious whether that, from based on what you said also about narrative and reading, you know, if that works better for women than for men. Role playing is complicated. I have, I have not, and I'd love to hear from listeners if they feel otherwise, I have not found it to be super helpful role playing. Some couples can totally get into it and have a great time. But for most people, they they just feel silly. Now, if you look, sometimes when you try new things with sex, it's um, it feels silly, but it's fu silly fun, and that's great. And sometimes it feels silly, and then you get into it, and then it doesn't feel silly. It feels really hot, and that's great. 
But sometimes I have women saying to me something like, oh, please, like, he's sort of trying to be like this, but he's so not like this. Like, it just feels worse. Do you know what I mean? And that's where I say, maybe this has to do with taking a step back and trying to look at your partner differently. Because we try really hard to believe that we know our partners 100%, right? Like, in order to feel safe in our life, we need to do that when we're in monogamous long-term relationships. But we don't. And if we allow ourselves to say, wait a minute, there really are parts to this man that I, or woman, but in this case, and mostly we're talking men, that there's this part to this man that I don't see, that, I, that I'm allowing myself to see, or allowing him to be. You know, I feel like we have... To a certain degree, we don't talk about the fact that men now in the 21st century, the good guys are trying so hard to be the good guys that often they don't, they don't even express their needs and what they want and allow themselves to sort of dig deep into what they feel in every direction. And if we can allow that to happen, I think it will shift some of this desire issue as well. Now, that's obviously a much more complicated thing to work on with somebody than here's a vibrator. Right. So I feel like it's really, really critical. And I think especially boys and men who are trying so hard, who are so worried and legitimately worried about consent in every situation. Um, there's ways that you can make sure that you have consent and yet still access what is you deeply, your primal deep needs. Because I think it's when women connect to something, it's often those primal deep needs. Mm-hmm. And the issue of, uh, of fantasy? The issue of fantasy, I think, works much better for women and men, actually. I think men do that naturally and don't feel guilty about it. I feel like women, I feel like men, if I, I said, do you fantasize? They may say no, but then if you push... Yeah, well, ideas and thoughts are just flying in and out of their head all the time. And I think this, again, is very related to the testosterone levels. Because if you up the testosterone level for women, it makes fantasizing easier too, right? But I think with women, they're so used to shutting that down. Like, I shouldn't be thinking about somebody besides my partner. Or I shouldn't be imagining my partner as a, you know, wearing leather. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I shouldn't somehow. Like, that's not good. Um, And we need to start treating, teaching women how to do that differently. That's so interesting, given the point you made before about the whole monogamy issue or the whole desire for someone else, that women who more have desire for someone else also feel more that they have to sub, uh, like suppress it. Yes, that's exactly the point. The point is that where men will say, oh, I wish I could have sex with five other women. Like, you know, my, my wife is great and she's beautiful and she's hot, but like, you know, I really want sex with other women. They can say that. Nobody would look at them and say, oh, that's terrible. But women don't say that. You do not usually hear women say that. Usually women will say, I don't really want to have sex with my husband. I guess I'm just not interested in sex. That is what I think happens rather than if we acknowledge the fact that the women could say, you know what, I'm really, I'm really much more interested in these other hot guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, even though I'm not really, like, I don't really want to be married to them. Like, they'd be jerks, you know, but... So I feel, yes. So does that answer that question? Interesting. Interesting. Yes. Yes. Could I ask one more question from the male perspective, which is the sense I get from you is that reading erotica for women is helps, uh, you know, sharpen the desire. Is the same true for pornography for men or could it be the opposite? Like that it sort of becomes a different type of an outlet and does not, you know, and doesn't really help desire vis-a-vis their wives. Well, I think it it all depends how you use it. I feel like if women decide that they're not going to invest in the relationship with their husbands and they spend their whole life like just reading these romantic, erotic stories, they can go down that rabbit hole too. And you have tons of women who go down that rabbit hole. So I think this has to do with how you use erotica slash pornography in both cases, right? If a woman decided I'm done with my husband and I'm just going to read this stuff and masturbate you know, she'd be fine. And then nothing would change in their relationship. And the truth is the same thing. If the guy goes into the basement and masturbates to his porn and doesn't try to in any way bring that into the relationship, then you have the same reaction. Is it helpful to the relationship watching pornography, would you say? I think both in a certain context is super helpful. Like I know a lot of couples where they like to read each other erotic stories, right? He gets turned on, she gets turned on. It works really well. They like to listen. I said that there's a, you know, there's now websites where you can actually download erotic stories read by actors. Really, really well done. You can choose like vanilla sex, crazy kinky sex. You can choose, you know, all women, all men, group sex, whatever, listening. Um, I often encourage women to turn on sex sounds because I feel like that's super helpful. And people do that either because they're trying to get themselves in the mood before they have sex 
and or because they want to listen during sex. And I think that that's amazing and that's good. So like anything else, these things are tools and your decision about how to use those tools is what will make ultimately the difference. Got it. So I think there are a couple of Gemaras that are relevant, specifically around the desire versus... Um, arousal. Arousal, thank you. There's a Gemara in Nida, which speaks about, um, you know, men not touching their penis because that'll lead to arousal, which will lead to, you know, uh, wasting seed, which will lead to ejaculation or masturbation. Whereas it says that women can do an internal check, you know, in their vagina to check for blood, and we're not concerned about where that will lead. Right. I love that. I remember at one point mentioning that to you because I thought that was such a fascinating text, right? As usual. Well, we'll have to do it for a uh, mini text episode. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the Gemara sort of says that the reason for the difference is that women don't get turned on. They're not benot hargasha. It's almost like a, a definition of the person. They don't have uh, sensual, you know, uh, a sensation that will turn them on. Now, some explain that that doesn't mean that in the absolute sense. It means that, you know, a simple vaginal check is not going to turn them on. Whereas for a man, just touching the penis could, you know, could could uh, lead to a lot of sexual thoughts and arousal, you know, but obviously women who masturbate, that would be different. Some, see, you know, seem to read it more categorically. So that's like an interesting question of what the Gemara thinks about, um, you know, the issue of arousal. More interesting yes. than that is that the... An internal exam is, is putting your finger in your vagina. And for most women, right. that's... <laughs> Sarah, you take it. My voice is too much. You say what I was about to say. Yeah, no, I was about to say, like, maybe the Gemara is actually being really, you know, intelligent and accurate about female sexual anatomy, right? Like, maybe they're like, if she touched her clitoris, it would do something. But just touching her vaginal canal is not going to really do anything. Right, right. And it depends, again, how categorically you read that phrase of the no targusha. You know, maybe it means like, like this type of touch doesn't do anything for them. You know, but then there's like other Gemaras that speak about um, a man isn't supposed to live alone because of the mitzvah of pruravu, of being able to have more children. And a woman isn't supposed to live alone because of a concern that she'll have sex. So, um, you know, lest she fornicate. So that certainly seems to say that there's more of a concern that a woman living alone will have sex than a man. So I don't know exactly what to do with that. Um, you know, Ramam, you know, it says that she'll be suspected of that. So maybe, you know, just, just people have, you know, think that in things because it's uh, titillating or whatever. But at least that's a Gemara which seems to point to certainly recognizing a woman will have uh, desire sex if she's alone. You know, but then there are other Gemaras that speak about like, a man has to, you know, make sure that his wife, he has his wife's consent before having sex with her. And the impression one gets from at least the way the Gemara discusses it is like, a lot of women aren't going to be interested. So you really have to get her in the mood in order to get her consent. So those are like a couple of relevant Gemaras, like one that sort of feels, and maybe it's the difference between married and not married. I don't know. But, you know, one that feels that a woman who's living alone might seek it out, or maybe some man will seduce her. But it also seems that often you might have to persuade your wife to have sex. Right. Well, that kind of reminds me of the different categories of desire Batsheva mentioned at the beginning, right? Like kind of acknowledging like a, she might be in the number two category of like not spontaneously desirous of sex, but responsive to the husband's, you know, overtures to try to get her in the mood and that you should go through that process. And just so I category that number two, a woman could actually make a decision herself, right? She could decide in herself listen, we, we try to have sex on Sunday nights and you know, I'm not ultimately that in the mood right now. I'm gonna get myself in the mood, so I wanna have sex. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the response to the husband's overtures that level two. It could also be, it's just an ability to access it. So yeah, totally, right. But it also goes back to all the halachas about whether you can have two men in a room with one woman or two women with one man, right? So right. That's a good point too, that the Gemara assumes that the men are gonna initiate sex much more than it assumes that the woman will. Well, or is that the issue? Or the issue is that two men, would they would be willing to have sex together in a room with one woman? That's also true, that's also true. Right. But according to some 
like Postkin, that's actually an excellent point because according to many Postkin, the concern is that the man will seduce the woman and not vice versa. So for example, if there's, let's say a case where a man and a woman have to share a house and so they're in separate bedrooms, that you address the yichud concern, you know, the being in seclusion together concern, if the woman's door is locked and the man's is unlocked, but not the reverse. Because if the woman's door is locked, the man won't be able to go in. So that solves the problem. Whereas if the man's door is locked, he'll just let himself out and it doesn't solve the problem. Well, he, no, I think the idea is that he could leave it unlocked and she's never going to try to get in. Correct. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That if she's controlling if it's locked or not, then in theory, she could get out and go into his room, which is unlocked. But the, we're not concerned about that. Exactly. We're only concerned that he'll go out of his room and then enter hers. So there's definitely for, you know, post-game, this assumption that the man Man will desire sex more than the woman. There definitely yeah. is a major theme in the Gemara, the assumption that men will, you know, the Gemara's actual example that it uses for this is think about the, you know, the marketplace for prostitutes, you know, who goes seeking out, you know, it's the men who seek out the women, you know, and not women seeking out men. So it's clear that men have, you know, greater desire for women than the reverse. But so I just, and this may be a kind of interesting note to end on. I once was talking to a friend of mine who's a sociologist, uh, and I was saying to her, is it like every religion where the men are so much more committed to, because you know, I was thinking, you know, in shuls, Orthodox shuls, the men get there earlier, they're there longer. I said, is like, is it every religion where the men are like more involved and more committed? And she looked at me like I had three heads. I remember this. She was like, are you crazy about Java? Like she said, Judaism is such an anomaly. Like when you look at Christianity or a lot of the, uh, you know, Catholicism, like, the women are at in church every morning. Like the, it's a women are much more faithful to the religion than the men are. Right? It's it, in a certain way, Judaism has excluded a women. I think in an attempt to keep the men engaged. Well, that's a whole other conversation that we can discuss. But I think that that's sort of true about sex too. Like when you say that, like our culture is that way, but there are cultures where male prostitution for women is huge and rampant. Right? Like where women are looking for male prostitutes. Um, much more than in America. So I don't know. I feel like we live our cultural life and kind of assume that that's the norm. And I don't know always that it is. Right. Put those demands together. It's not a pretty picture, right? Men are seeking out women. Women aren't seeking out men. Men will use, you know, you know, seize more on the opportunity. Uh, women uh, don't always want sex and have to be seduced yeah. into it, whereas whereas men do. And, you know, women, I mean, might not get aroused depending on how you read that Gemara, you know, or certainly not aroused in certain circumstances. It's more than not a pretty picture. It's, I think it's the underpinning of where we see our sex lives and why it's so such a struggle for so many women, honestly. And I'm hoping in this book to kind of try to give people a way out of that way of thinking. Although understanding that, you know, we're culturally set up for this. So it takes a little bit of time and patience and kindness to yourself to see if you can turn the circle around. But I, the only thing I want to say is that I do feel we don't understand desire 100%. And there are medications out there now that they've started to use for women's low desire, not home runs, but some of them work quite well, in addition to hormones. But if you're somebody who's struggling with this, or your partner is struggling with this, like, it can get better. And I, I, I feel that with all, all my heart. So I just want to make sure that that message gets out. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for this conversation. Next up, we'll talk to our very own Dr. Batsheva Marcus about her new book called Sex Points. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. With over 125 musmachim in the field, Yeshivat Chovavei Torah is committed to training a new generation of modern Orthodox rabbis. Jason, you're a rabbi in training. What's your perspective? It was precisely the musmachim of Yeshivat Chov Torah that drew me to the yeshiva. The tremendous diversity of work that they're engaged in and the underlying love of and commitment to the Jewish people really inspires me. Thanks, Jason. If you'd like to apply or schedule a visit, go to yctorah.org. All right. We are so excited to be interviewing Dr. Batsheva Marcus about her new book, which is called Sex Points, Reclaiming Your Sex Life with the Revolutionary Point System. Okay. So Batsheva, first of all, uh, just wanted to say mazel tov on this book. Congratulations. This is so exciting. Thank you so much. I hope you guys are not tired of listening to me because I feel like I'm yapping away today. But Batsheva, I could listen to you all day. And I want to say that I already pre-ordered the book and I found out that my wife did the same. So, you know, two books are better than one. Yes. yes. Can, you can give it to somebody who needs it. 
Absolutely. So first of all, I know we sort of touched upon this um, during the main episode, but your title is extremely intriguing. So can you tell us a little bit about this revolutionary point system you talk about in the title? So the idea is, and I feel like we have to stop thinking about our sex life as like what's not working, like the thing that isn't working. Like we're all like looking around like, oh, it must be my relationship or it must be we just had a fight or it must be that I'm really tired or it must be the kids are banging at the door or it must be my birth control pills or it must be my, I don't know, my high blood pressure pills and stop thinking about it as the thing that's off that you're going to find that magic piece and switch it back on. Like, like I think I light switch is the example I usually use. I think the model that we all need to use and which is way more helpful is that you need to hit a hundred point threshold in order to make your sex life work. So for example, if you take, I don't know, a 19 year old girl who's got, you know, 90 points because she's super healthy. She gets plenty of sleep. She has no problem sleeping. She has 90 points of her own, like hormone levels. She can have sex with pretty much anyone anywhere and have good sex. She could meet somebody on an airplane and have sex in the airplane bathroom and it could be good sex because she just needs 10 points, right? But then you take her and you look at her, you know, she's 24 years old now and her hormones are still good. Her body's still good. She falls madly in love. That gives her 30 points. She's a hot new relationship. That gives her 30 points. She's walking around with 150 points and she can have sex even if her partner did something really not nice and they're kind of mad at each other or if she is exhausted from the job thing that's going on, she's still going to have good sex because if you take away points, she's still going to hit that 100-point threshold. But what happens six years later when they're married, now her she's, it's, she's still in love with this guy, but the hot meanness is gone and they've got kids banging at the door. And so now she's working at like maybe 100 points. Well, as soon as she gets overwhelmed at work, or as soon as the relationship gets a little rocky, oh my God, she's now dropping below those 100 points and now it's not working for her. So what I'm trying to get people to see with this book is that you need to look at your life as an amalgam of places where you're losing points and you could get points. It starts with a 32 question questionnaire, which you can take um, either in the book or I have an online option at Dr. Bacheva, and it ends up with point levels in desire, in arousal, an orgasm and pain, and it explains why those point effect may be affecting the other quadrants. So you have a really good snapshot picture of like your point profile and where you're really missing points and how that may be impacting other areas. And then you just jump right in and you get points. And so that you do with all the second half of the book, which is like, it's almost like choose your own adventure. Like if you're missing points in this quadrant, go to chapter 10, go to chapter 12, go to chapter 17, right? That is so cool. I really love the way that you're framing this as like a very holistic picture, right? It's like, it's not just about one thing or the other thing or like finding the like missing piece. It's really kind of sounds like an exciting you know, sticker system. Like, yes. like I'm thinking about like like a game where like get as many points as you can. And no, I, totally. I That's exactly where I was trying. And what's really funny about this is that I have to tell you, my kids have made no ends of fun of this book. Like they just think this book is, and not because it's about sex, because Lord knows they're used to me talking about sex constantly, but because they feel like this feels very cosmo-y to them. They're like, really? Really, Ima? This is your magnum opus? This is what you've been wanting to do? Like, this book is so popular, like popular as in, you know, easy to read popular, not popular. Everybody loves it popular. And the truth is I worked really, really hard to take a subject that was so complicated and so um, wide ranging and try to bring it down and make it into something that was really easy and manageable and bite-sized pieces. Okay. Wow. This is so, so interesting. So I'm, I'm just wondering how, how long have you been thinking about writing this book? How long did it take you to write it? Like, what was the process like? That is such a terrible question. I'm afraid that anybody who listens will never write a book. I'll just say like, so first of all, I would say that I, on some level, I'm working on this book for eight years because what happened was I started getting frustrated that women who couldn't come to my center, May's Women's Health, were just getting horrible, shoddy advice. And I felt like the more we learned about what we were doing, the more I was like un uncovering pieces of things that I felt like people didn't hear about. So I started writing pieces of it. So that was number one. And then I had probably four false starts in this book. I probably started this book four times and like 
went nuts. I got bored of it. I was like, if I'm bored with this, nobody else is going to want to read this, right? Kind of thing. So I put it away for a year and then I pull it back out again. And I did what I didn't allow myself to do with my dissertation. Because I don't know, a lot of people who work in the dissertation, they like put it aside and then it gets overwhelming and they don't go back. And I, I had a sign over my desk that said like 15 minutes a day. Like whatever you did, 15 minutes a day. I didn't do that with this book. It kept getting put aside. But when I finally pulled it out, which I think was about three years ago or something like that, I had big chunks of it and I just needed to put it all together and sort of put it together. And then I had to find somebody who'd be willing to publish it. But that actually, and that was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life, like putting it out there to find an agent. But I was so blessed. I found this like amazing agent who picked it up immediately, sold it very quickly. And then I have to say the rest of it has been like a little horrifying. So the publishing Hachette, which is a very big publisher in America, had an amazing, amazing editor. I loved her. She was fabulous. But the marketing, I don't know if people realize that you kind of have to market your own book. Is that different? Did, did these book publishers used to do the marketing? A hundred percent. People used to say that once upon a time, book publishers did a lot of the marketing and a lot of the publicity. And now they assign a marketing person on the publicity and they do some stuff. But I have my own publicity person and, you know, I have the marketing from Maze and I'm just doing a ton of stuff myself as well. You know, my agent, who I adore, said to me, you have to get on social media which is why for the last year, every time we're doing a podcast, I'm like, follow me at Dr. Bajava. You know, how irritating is that? But the truth is I have learned to love Instagram. I'm like, I, I'm Instagramma and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, I think it's a great platform. And I started the Ultimate Sex Book Club on Facebook because I realized there was no but place talking about, you know, sex books. So that part is it kind of been fun. It's just, if I'm being honest, it's kind of overwhelming. I'm so glad you brought up the sex book club because I was about to ask you about that um, sort of in a more like zoomed out kind of or like conceptual way. You know, through your work with this book club, like how do you think that books about sex and talking about books about sex can be like helpful for people in a way that's different than just listening to a speaker talk about it. I want to say one thing about this book club. If anybody's interested, it's on Facebook. I put it on Facebook because you can't do a book club on Instagram. It's called The Ultimate Sex Book Club. You can look for it and you can join it by answering. It's for women, really. It's for women and professionals. So if you're a guy and you're a therapist, we let you on. Or it's for people who identify as women. And I think that books can be incredibly helpful because like when I think about my book, you may not use parts of it right now. Like right now, you may not be having pain, right? But I feel like the chapters on pain will be so helpful to you when and if pain starts to become a problem. Or if you're 21 and you're having pain, but you're, you can't even imagine what it must feel like to have no desire. Like I think having a book on a shelf that you know you've kind of read it, you kind of have a sense of things, it, it makes it really helpful for you to have it like there. I, I, that's why I do think that books won't die, even though we have so much other content. Um, and I think that there have been amazing books. Like we've covered Becoming Cliterate, which is like so helpful to women about understanding how a woman's body works. Or Peggy Ornstein's Women, Girls, and Sex. Like I feel that gives people such a different perspective on how they look at how women and little girls are taught about sex and why consent has become such an issue. And that is such a rich book. And I feel like it's hard to pick up a book like that and just read it by yourself. We're going to be having Sarah come on to talk about Monologues from the Makam. I just think it's a great place for people to see, hear about new books and see new books. I want to go back to one point about the content, about the 100 points. Do you feel that the people should be almost like assessing that on a monthly, annual basis? Or like, how do you expect people to use it after they do the first run through? Oh my God, that is such a great question. And you were the, and I have been on so many podcasts now, they're going to drop when the book drops and nobody has asked that question, Dove. And the reason I love that question is because you know that I feel like your sex life is not static, right? It changes constantly. Nobody's asked me that question. I can't even think, say to you that I've thought about that particular question. But I have thought about the fact that in general, your sex life takes work. Like again, like that exercise analogy, the exercise you did when you were, you know, 19 or two years ago or in the winter versus the summer or when you get into swimming versus ice skating, like your sex life is constantly changing. And so either because you think to yourself, oh, it's not been so great lately, let me re-self-assess or because maybe once a year you sit down and you re-self-assess. I think that would be unbelievably valuable because in the end, the unattended sex life is not a good sex life. It's the sex life that you're actually thinking about and working on it that's going to last you for your whole life. 
Wasn't that Plato? The unreflected life is not worth living. Probably. <laughs> and <laughs> the unattended sex life, I'm going to go, I'm going to do, I'm going to crochet that on a pillow. The unattended sex life is just not going to function well. <laughs> so I guess to wrap up, is there, first of all, anything that you want to share with listeners about the book that we have not asked you yet? I think you did a great job. I would love people to read the book and I would love people to give me feedback either by DMing me on Instagram or messaging me on Facebook or emailing this podcast because I feel like this podcast has been a piece of all of this for me. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for five or six years and it's been just part of the journey with the book, I think, in terms of understanding people and how they um, and how they react and issues that are coming up for people. If you want to order the book, please, please do. The website is drbacheva, drbacheva.com. And I have these three pre-order gifts. If you pre-order, then you have these like three free downloads about lube, about vibrators. So that's a little sort of added bonus, but please read the book and let me know what you think. Fabulous. So wonderful to have you as a guest. Absolutely. And we can't wait to read it. Next up, the final word after this quick word from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Rabbi Eliezer Lawrence, and I'm a certified Mohel serving the New York metropolitan area. I work with Jewish families and conversion candidates of all identities, affiliations, and orientations, both within the Orthodox community and beyond. With the sense of uncertainty that we face during this pandemic, you need to feel certain that your baby is in safe hands. My practice is built on ethos of the highest standard of safety and sterility as well as a deep spirituality for both family and guests. I am proud to have been a key advocate in working with community leadership to ensure clear safety guidelines for Brit Mila during the coronavirus. For more information about me or my practice, you can visit my website, familymohel.com, or give me a call at 201-694-1801. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast, Stay safe and Tova. Can I just jump in here, Sarah, and say that Dove and I have started a new short segment if you're on social media, Facebook, Instagram, you ask, we answer. As long as you're following, you have text, you'll get them. We take people's questions because we we're feeling so bad we weren't getting to them and we try to answer them in five minutes or less in these very little short snippets of videos so you can see our faces on these videos too pretty crazy awesome so our final word for this week is a very interesting question and here it is do flavored condoms need to be kosher my husband is undergoing medical treatment that requires us to use condoms which we got a hetzer for but i'm wondering if we can use flavored condoms during oral sex or if this poses a cautious issue. Rabbi Linzer, what do you have to say about the cautious of condoms? Well, I will say that you are never going to find a Heksher industry giving a Heksher to condoms. Um, actually, I think they might be giving a Heksher to uh, marijuana in the states where that's legal, but I think that's going to happen a long, long time before they give a Heksher to condoms. So uh, you have to figure this one out for yourself. Just because of the context, halakhically, it's still an issue. You're ingesting something. And because they're flavored, uh, you know, they're going to use ingredients that are give it flavor. And in halacha, the whole idea that something could be a small amount and be nullified doesn't apply if it's being, if it's part of a mixture and it's intended to give flavor. And the thing you have to look out for is when it says natural flavorings, which all sounds very natural, but believe it or not, some of those natural flavorings can be made by things by ants and similarly, similar. So we're not, so <laughs> something to know when you're reading the ingredients for yourself. Um, so this is not just like a trivial halachic concern. So what I would say is read the label and if it doesn't have natural flavorings and it doesn't say anything else that flags a problem, I think you can assume it's okay. But you do, at the end of the day, it does have to be kosher. So I just want to jump in here and say, I get this question about um, lubricants, whether lubricants have to be kosher. That's, you know, there's flavored lubricants. Um, I think you can actually flavor your own lubricants if you want, or maybe even put like maple syrup on a condom. But obviously we're talking about this for oral sex, not for putting inside a vagina. Okay. So just be really careful. You don't want to really put sugary things in a vagina. Not good. You don't want to put acidic things into a vagina because it could burn. It won't do damage, but you just won't feel good. But 
uh, somebody should consider doing this. I don't know. Anyway, just throwing that out there. So if we have any, you know, uh, yeah, any adventurous entrepreneurs out there listening right now, you know, we we back the idea of coming up with a shared flavored condoms. Actually, it would be a good subsidiary business for Joy of Tax to actually bring money in. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Be well. Thank you so much to our very special guest, Dr. Batsheva Marcus. This episode of The Joy of Text was produced and edited by Max Hollander and is a project of the Lindenbaum Center at YCT. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share with us, you can do so anonymously at www.thejoyoftext.org. The Joy of Text is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. If you like what you hear, show us your support by giving us a five-star rating and stay up to date with our latest episodes and live events by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. 